0: listeners and lurkers, I'm Alan Johnston. And I'm Amy Johnston. And we're so happy that you're joining us for The Last Aisle. This week, we'll be covering the 1981 movie, Dead and Buried, directed by Gary Sherman, with story by Jeff Miller and Alex Stern, and screenplay by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. This movie answers the question, what really goes on in the small towns that everyone just drives past? Or why should I stay vigilant when I'm an outsider? Or what was Grandpa Joe's origin story in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? (laughs) And now, if you'll indulge me, a dramatic reading of the back of the box. Something very strange is happening in the quiet coastal village of Potter's Bluff, where tourists and transients are warmly welcomed, then brutally murdered. But even more shocking is when these slain strangers suddenly reappear as normal, friendly citizens around town. Now the local sheriff and an eccentric mortician must uncover the horrific secret of a community where some terrifying traditions are alive and well, and no one is ever really dead and buried. Amy, do you remember the cover to this movie? I remember it so well. Also, before we really get started, I just want to, for the record, say eleven episodes, sister. That's oh, yeah, that's fucking amazing, kid. Yeah. Like we did that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I remember. I remember it so well. Mm-hmm. And I've never and had never seen the movie before this. Yes. Yeah. We watched this the first time together mm-hmm. for this episode, and um. But I remember walking through Hollywood Video or walking through Blockbuster and seeing it and being like so intrigued by the art because I thought that the art was really kind of pretty. Yeah, it's very striking. It's just like this large face, like kind of facing the sky coming out of the ground. And it's Mm -hmm. very like lots of blue and black Mm -hmm. and dead and buried. Isn't Super stylized. It's very stylized. But this is kind of another one in the series of, like, covers I remember from when I was a kid. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I had also just watched it, kind of picked it sight unseen. I was like, let's pick one that we've never seen before, but we totally remember seeing the cover for as kids. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I was expecting a terrible movie same i don't know if that's just because i'm a pessimist well (laughs) no i mean knowing the era knowing that it was done in like what 1981 81 yeah knowing that it was it came out in 1981 i was just like right all right let's fucking mst3k this shit right it's gonna be fun to make fun of right so just not a pessimist but just like I mean... I mean, I knew it was going to have a good... Getting a read for the era. Yeah, and I knew... I'm like, I'm going to have a good time if it's great or if it sucks. Like, either way. Um, But I remember I was, like, you know, kind of considering this one. And I was like, I'll just go, like, look up a, a trailer on YouTube. And then the trailer 100 percent sold me yeah and when i saw that jack albertson who played grandpa joe yeah. in the gene wilder willy wonka and the jacket yeah. factory i was like i don't care if this is absolute garbage i have to watch it yeah because he, grandpa joe's in a horror movie so yeah. um th- so yeah no this turned out to uh to pleasantly surprise me yeah so with all that being said let's dig right in Caution. Spoilers ahead. The movie opens on a VW van pulling onto a beach. A man dressed like a wannabe fisherman gets out of the van and pulls out some camera equipment. As he starts taking pictures of the shoreline and the local wildlife, his camera suddenly captures the view of a young, beautiful blonde woman. So, uh, just before you continue, this beach was the beach location is absolutely gorgeous. It's like this rocky, mm-hmm. beautiful beach. And I was like, I have to know where this is. It's in Mendocino, California, of all places. It looks like it's in Maine or Which, somewhere like that. Um, but it's most likely Portuguese uh, Portuguese beach, and it's an absolutely stunning place. It really looks like Maine or somewhere else. Gary Sherman decided to shoot the opening sequence in predominantly overcast weather, possibly to sell the location that it wasn't in yeah. California. Um, and it worked because even I wanted to visit this beach and I'm a goth chick who repels anything sunshine. So <laughs> I was like, this is a gorgeous place and I want to go to here. Oh, it's in California? Ew. <laughs> yeah. She comments on his camera and how he must be a professional photographer asking all sorts of questions about what he does and why he's here and asks the man what his name is. The man, played by Christopher Allport, starts to tell her, but she stops him and says, let her guess. She says he looks like a Fred or a Freddy. The man says, fine, I'll be Freddie and you can be Lisa. The woman is actually played by Lisa Blount. So I'm thinking he's just a really good guesser or, you know, forgot her character name. (laughs) Freddie tells her she's very pretty and she asks if she's pretty enough to model. He says absolutely and starts to shoot photos of her while 1980s softcore porno sax music plays in the background. Yeah, dude, is this like... Did we accidentally stumble into a softcore porn movie? The shots are taken through a soft filter lens here also, and so I'm just waiting for clothes to come off. Like, Yeah, if, yeah. I'm like, um, this is absolute 100% percent bow A wow like, Yeah, to the, like, to the point you're like in the first five minutes of the movie and you're like, I don't think we're supposed to be watching this. Like, I think... I know. Any minute, <laughs> so I'm just going to walk through that door and be like, "What are you watching?" I know. <laughs> Freddie keeps telling Lisa how pretty she is, taking shot after shot, and Lisa opens her shirt, showing off her dirty pillows. Uh, <laughs> looks like I didn't have to wait long for the clothes to come off after all. Um, I did also go back and check the title here just to make sure I was watching the right movie because I'm just like, "Yes, what is, what is happening? happening? Did somebody mix up the, the tape? Like, you know." <laughs> um. Lisa asks if he likes what he sees and his eyes just about fall out of his head in approval. She asks if Freddy wants her and he approaches her to get started on some good old beach loving. when suddenly Lisa grabs his camera, snaps a picture of him and says, smile Freddy and multiple men pop out of nowhere. One raises a crowbar above his head and smacks Freddy with it, knocking him to the ground. There we go. Yeah, There's the I'm like ah, I'm in, and I'm, ba- and I'm back, and I'm back. The men are armed with shovels, pieces of wood, the crowbar. They go to town on Freddy, kicking and beating him. The scene cuts to Freddy up against a large wooden pole, bound to it with a fishing net. A man in a beanie walks up to Freddy and tells him, "Welcome to Potter's Bluff." Proceeding to pour gasoline over his head, we see that a large crowd is gathered to watch the spectacle. Freddie screams as the gasoline covers him and screams even louder as a dark-haired woman walks up to him, strikes a match, and drops it right at his feet. Freddie is set ablaze as the crowd continues to take pictures silently and stoically as he burns to death. Yeah. This... So a whole lot happened in, like, the first five right. minutes of I this have, movie. I have thoughts. I have so many thoughts yeah, already. Yeah, like, we went from, like, super suave, smooth, like, is this going to be, like, a make-out naked session on a beach to, like, burning a man at a stake. Yeah, and the, that screaming through the net is, like, quintessential early 80s overacting. Oh, like, it's so good, I, uh, though. Like, and, it sells it. Oh, for sure. Like, he's, like, pushing his face through the net, and it's, like, I don't know, a little bit reminds me of, like, Jim Carrey's like face under the in the un, under all the baggage and liar liar like he's like, bah. but like <laughs> yeah because dude <laughs> leaned into the net just to like <laughs> really crush did. his face <laughs> against it he really did, and then also the fucking people just standing there taking pictures as like, like silently dude, as dudes like Alaskan baked it's so <laughs> toasted marshmallowed whichever like it's uh, it's yeah you're already like wait what what is what's happening. happening? So, I was in. I was like, all right, I'm in. Right. In the next scene, we get a shot of a car on fire and hear multiple people talking around the scene. It appears that we're at a crime scene. Firemen work to put the overturned VW bus fire out, and Sheriff Dan Gillis, played by James Farantino, attempts to contact someone on the police radio in his patrol car. He finally reaches Betty at the sheriff's office, played by Estelle Omens, asking where Dobbs the coroner is with the meat wagon. Betty says she talked to him a half hour ago and that he said he was on his way Sheriff Dan tells Betty to call Dobbs again and to have him hurry up They sign off and Dan goes to talk to Harry played by Robert England who is inspecting the remains of the car and wondering aloud if someone would let him have the car for salvage Oh they bring the wrong guides (laughs) (laughs) Dan tells Harry that Dobbs is on his way and Harry muses that there's no need to hurry because the occupant of the van is definitely a goner they suddenly hear faint, big band music in the background and look up to see a car approaching. Harry says, here comes Dobbs, and an old model station wagon pulls up with mortician and corner William Dobbs, played by Jack Albertson, a.k.a. Grandpa Joe, Grandpa Joe, happily listening to some tunes. Dan approaches and begins to accost him for being late to the scene, but Dobbs just shushes him so he can finish listening to his song on the radio. Dobbs smiles as the song wraps up and tells Dan that he is now at his service. He's like got all he all the time in the world. Yeah. Super chill dude. Yeah. To for being like grand and also Grandpa Joe is an undertaker. Just like take yeah, that. No, in. I know. I take know. a moment to breathe that in. How's your childhood doing? <laughs> Dobbs <laughs> exits the car and approaches the crime scene, kneeling down to have a look at the body that's still trapped inside the burned out van. Dan sarcastically asks Dobbs what he thinks the cause of death might be and we zoom in on an amazing burn makeup done by the legendary Stan Winston. R.I.P. Stan Winston. Suddenly the burned face screams (laughs) the man is not Not dead. dead. it oh okay so I know you said we watched it together I watched up until this point before you did just because I was like let me see what we're in for as soon as I saw this makeup I turned the movie off I was like I'm not watching this without Amy we are watching it together and we are so covering this movie on the podcast yeah 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 yeah. yes 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 Yes. Uh, Oh, okay so many things to say Stan Winston come on legendary artist rest in peace man like really gone too soon um, he does the makeup effects for this film and is an abs- absolutely incredible makeup effects artist. From Aliens to The Wiz, Edward Scissor's ha- Scissorhands, fucking interview with a vampire. He's done so much. I'm in, done. In, like I, like, I could. I'm not going to sit here and list his entire filmography, but I could because yeah. this man is like the was like the freaking Gandalf the White of makeup. Yeah, like, he's he was so good. Ins- Insanely good. And this movie contains some of the most. Startling effects on in nineteen eighty one. Like this movie was Quint. This movie was actually, revered as one of the best makeup effects movies and it's of sad the time. because i like i recognize the cover but when i hear about like classic 80s horror getting discussed i don't i've never no, heard usually anyone mention this movie american Werewolf in london yeah where you hear like there's a few that are mentioned that you're like yes 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 like the the thing yeah um but like you don't usually hear about dead and buried which Mm-mm. is a tra- goddamn travesty uh-huh but about this film, Stan Winston said a lot of us were pushing to give a little bit more style, and I think director Gary Sherman really tried to, with uh, Stephen Poster, who was the uh, director of photography. They wanted to give Dead and Buried a stylish look, and he was on a he said he was on a shoestring budget, like mm-hmm. this was a low budget film. Mm-hmm. He said he know he knows that he put hundred hundred and ten percent of his of himself into the effects, and sir, Mister. Mr. Winston, oh, he succeeded. Your greatness, we believe you. Oh, like God. we believe every bit of it. The first effect that really comes into play here is that is that uh, Freddie played, uh, played by Christopher Alport burning in the car upside down, and the burning head in that scene was a recreation of the actor's head. The mm. make the makeup effects coupled with some clever puppetry allowed the effect to be really realistic, and. Um, I am just going to say go right now, like, if you're listening to this, go right now to stanwinstonschool.com and search this movie. Oh, yeah. Because there is a close-up of the still of the head, and it is gnarly. I'm going to ha- I didn't because, go look at that. I'm going to have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it is the eye is so realistic looking that it's crazy off-putting and I'm fucking here for it. Wait until we get some... I mean, this is just the first effect This is just the first effect. There are so many other and I, I have so much to say. And he, I also... He said that he also remembers that they did a test in his studio of the Burning Head. They did it upside down, which is the way it was supposed to be scripted and the way it ended up in the movie like mm-hmm. right, and, and right side up. And he spent an enormous amount of time and energy trying to create this very realistic burn victim puppet After the test, he said for his eye, it didn't really read organic to me, to him. And um, he remembers throwing a real hissy fit on set on that particular, on that particular day. Probably, he said he was probably somebody that like Gary Sherman was like, I don't want to work with this guy anymore. He said he, revisiting the film, it still works upside down and like that really shows that. How extreme they could take the puppetry in this yeah. movie. And that that is one of the things that will come up again and again. Yeah. The way things read on film in this movie are so convincing. Yeah. And he worked his ass off to get them that way. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the only part that I kind of like giggle, I the makeup was amazing, but like the way that the scre- like the scream didn't quite oh, yeah. fit. And so like that yeah. made me laugh, but it had nothing to do that's with how t- the effects looked. Yeah, that's like behind that's like reshoots on the audio or yeah. whatever it was it was but oh my god but no. yeah i mean so i'm sorry i'm sorry to like hijack your, pod, no, no, your no. podcast script for this but like no there's that's more important. there will be more makeup squealing to come but, but which is fine because i am an absolute just like i want every bit of makeup tell that me is, tell me tell me everything yeah yeah i'm i'm an. i'm an effects baby freddie scream fades and takes us into the next scene opening on the main street of potter's bluff Dan leaves the sheriff's office and heads down the sidewalk, going into a diner and joining a group of men at a table after asking the waitress to grab him a coffee. Harry is at the table and tells the other two gentlemen, Herman, played by Michael Curry, and Phil, played by Barry Corbin, about the scene of the accident last night. Harry asks if Dan was able to get an ID on the burned man in the van, but he tells them no. Phil says Dan should be able to find some clues, what with all the fancy book learning he has. And Ernie says, if you can't solve a traffic accident, what are you going to do if a real crime happens? Oh my God, they're just like fucking with him. I know. Harry tells the guys playfully to lay off Dan. They're lucky to have him since he has a master's in criminology and yet he came back to his hometown to help all the poor citizens out. Dan loudly asks the waitress for his coffee again as Harry asks if he's heard anything from the hospital about whether or not the man has woken up. Dan says they're not sure the man will ever wake up. And as the waitress Midge, played by Linda Turley, sets down Dan's coffee, she notes how horrible it is that such a thing could happen. The camera pans up, and we see the waitress's face for the first time. It is the same woman that struck the match that lit the photographer on fire. Yeah, and she's like, "It's just terrible." And I'm like, "I don't think she really does believe this I is think just you terrible. Think it's just fine." I think. I think that you're okay with it, maybe. You faker. (laughs) The next scene takes place on a foggy night outside and we can hear a drunken singing from a man's voice. We finally get sight of the man, credited as fisherman and played by Ed Bakey, stumbling and holding a bottle, continuing to sing and cough his way through a tuneless old sea shanty. Uh huh. And I'll be looking forward to the album Sea Shanties of a Drunken Salt because (laughs) I hear it. This guy is a character. He goes on a rant telling someone, because there's nobody there, not to talk to him about boats because he knows everything about boats. (laughs) And it's slurry and stumbly. He comes across. He says that like six times. He really wants us know. to know that uh, he's don't tell me boats all his boat. life. He <laughs> comes across a dead fish, pouring a little liquor in its mouth and says, goodbye, old friend, and then starts <laughs> laughing his ass off. <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> it's um, stupid, for me, but I'll God, drink for my buddy. <laughs> it's a oh, It's hilarious. He continues his drunken stumble rant about boats and sits down against a pile of crates when suddenly cameras start flashing and again he is surrounded by citizens of Potter's Bluff. Herman begins slashing the fisherman's face with a harpoon as people continue to take photos and the fisherman finally has his throat slashed and is impaled through the gut with the harpoon as he screams. What the fuck is going we'll on still here? still taking pictures, man. Still taking weird pictures. I mean... What the... F- This was before the internet when, like, everything was on film and and uploaded somewhere. So, like, what the shit? Yeah, I don't... I'm not okay with this. (laughs) I don't like this town. I mean, it's not going to be on my vacation checklist for sure. The Fisherman's screams fade into big band music to open the next scene in Dobbs Mortuary. He bebop scats along with the music, and as the first song ends, he puts on another record that plays "Sentimental Journey," and he begins to sway and dance to the music. Yeah, dude, Jack Albertson dancing around "A Sentimental Journey" is like a definite vibe. inside of mortuary, inside of prep a room. Vibe. Like, yeah, okay. I'm like, oh, okay, Grandpa Joe. The thing is, like, Grandpa Joe sucks, though. I mean, we he does, but I love him wholeheartedly no. through this entire movie. I do too. He approaches an elderly woman on his embalming table, but he's interrupted as a young man named Jimmy, played by Glenn Morshauer, comes in and tells him that the sheriff is there to see him. Dobbs loudly says that the sheriff must be there to inquire about some weed being sold in the town, and that rumor has it that Jimmy himself is the purveyor of said substance. Dobbs tells Jimmy to go ahead and send in the sheriff, but don't worry. Dobbs won't tell the sheriff that Jimmy keeps his stash underneath a dead body. (laughs) He's like fucking with this kid mercilessly. Jimmy's like 17, 18 years old and like the look on his face. He's like, what the fuck? They know. Dan walks in with a smile and Dobbs says he hopes that the sheriff doesn't mind that he used him to rib his assistant a little bit. Dan says he thinks that Dobbs scared him pretty good, but that even though he did catch him once with a couple of joints, Jimmy's a good kid. Mm -hmm. Dobbs goes right back to intently focus on the body on the table, and Dan has to shut off the music to get Dobbs to pay attention to him. Dobbs apologizes for being preoccupied, but that Mrs. Collins' case is requiring a lot of attention because she must have fallen. The sheriff says that Dobbs must have needed to use a lot of makeup, and Dobbs is very offended. A lot of makeup would be appropriate for the final viewing of a streetwalker, he says, but that the art he does is to bring life to the lifeless using every technique at his disposal. Dobbs asks Stan if he thinks the works Dobbs does is obscene, but what Dobbs says he thinks is obscene is that his art is sealed into a box and put into the ground. Uh, okay, all right, already, already. <laughs> no, dude. He's got a little bit of an obsession with his own talent, I think. Yeah. It's my art. <laughs> yeah. Art, fucking artists. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Dan doesn't have anything to say to that, and Dobbs calls for Jimmy to come move Mrs. Collins out of the room, asking the sheriff why he's come to call. Dan says he has a hunch about the body they found in the burning van, saying that he's wondering if someone could have burned the body elsewhere and then placed it in the van to cover up the actual crime. Dobbs begins to say that he doesn't have any basis to believe that, but he's interrupted by a phone call. Turns out it's Betty from the sheriff's office and it's for Dan. We can overhear Betty tell Dan that a dead body has been discovered in the boatyard and that he needs to get to the scene. Dan hangs up and tells Dobbs to meet him at the boatyard as soon as he can. At the boatyard, Dan inspects the body and Dobbs, already on the scene, tells him that this is definitely no accident. Dan says no it's a murder and reiterates that he thinks he's right about the burn man as well Mm -hmm. I don't know where this hunch came from with like why Dan thinks this I don't know if it's like Spidey sense tingling I mean Uh, like there's nothing at the scene that we get that would Causes him. I. I don't know. I guess if he doesn't suspect anything, then there's no movie. So there you go. I, yeah, it's, a, it's a plot mover So maybe he's just. Yeah. Maybe he just has to be one of those detectives that just suspects foul play I, everywhere. I don't know. Nothing. Much he also does. A he town. is given like noir energy a little bit too, because he's just like, he's like stoic and and like gruff and like a little rougher. That's how they write every freaking law yeah. enforcement like in every movie. I don't mm-hmm. know. In the next scene, Dan goes to the local hotel and approaches a man outside. He greets the hotel manager, Ben, played by Macon McCallman, and asks if anyone has checked out of the hotel recently without paying, or even if someone's disappeared. Ben initially says no, but then catches himself, saying there was a man who checked in yesterday but never returned to check out, that his car never came back but his suitcase is still in his room. Dan asks who the man is, but Ben admits that he doesn't really do registrations anymore. Also, dude, like, what is that accent? Because it's like Savannah, Rhode Island. I get get to that. I get (laughs) to that. Dan goes inside the hotel with Ben so he can look through the missing man's things. And Ben frets that he hopes nothing bad happened to the man because it will really scare off business and kill the Potter's Bluff tourist trade. Dan quips that he didn't know they even had a tourist trade. And Ben says, don't rub it in. Ben and Dan sort through the man's stuff and though Dan finds many items showing that the man was a photographer, there's nothing there with anything that can identify who he is. Ben suddenly says in the weirdest southern, non-southern accent ever, for Christ's sakes, ask your wife. I don't, what? It's, It's, I, it's it's inexplicable. I don't It's not New England. No. And it's not California where they shot it and it's not it's like like it's like Georgia, Rhode Island. It's like Savannah, it's Rhode Island. It's the weirdest weirdest yeah. accent, and I I like couldn't not latch on to no, it. No, because like they didn't do the Stephen King like they didn't Maine the Derry Dar- Maine accent no. either. It was <laughs> it was like Ask your <laughs> It's so fucking weird. Ben continues saying that Dan's wife knows him, and that the maid told Ben that Dan's wife dropped by the hotel yesterday afternoon to see him. Dan tries to hold it together, patting Ben on the shoulder and saying that he'll go home and talk to Janet about it. Ben looks dismayed a bit as Dan leaves the room. He just, like, he just sold out homie's wife to, like, I don't know, man. She was here in the hotel meeting's the maids are. her. <laughs> they getting, and, they were, yeah, they were getting down. And. Oh, my gosh. At the Gillis house, the sheriff goes inside to greet his wife, Janet, played by Melody Anderson. She gives him a kiss that goes half heartedly returned, and noticing his demeanor, she says, Uh oh. Dan says he's just tired, but Janet pushes him, saying he shouldn't keep things bottled up inside. He bluntly asks who the man was that Janet went to see at the hotel, and she laughs, saying she should have known when she married a cop that she wouldn't be able to keep a secret. He asks, what secret? And she says, there is no secret. I was visiting George. What's his name? He's a photographer that's going to sell some equipment to the school. Dan relaxes a bit and Janet laughs that Ben told Dan that she was going to see strange men at the hotel. Dan confesses that he thinks George is the man that was found in the car accident. And Janet gets a bit freaked out saying that that's the kind of thing that you think happens to other people. She now remembers the man's full name, George Lemoyne. Yeah, I also already don't trust the wife. Just, I just don't trust. I don't trust her. But this is again, you're suspicious of everyone super early all the time. Every yes, I am. Absolutely. The one you most medium suspect. Yeah, (laughs) but I suspect everyone a lot of equally mediumly. Yeah, everyone's in on it. I don't don't even even know what what it is yet. I don't even know what they're in on. She did it. There's a thing. It's happening. And it's she did it. She's the killer. Oh, my God. <laughs> she tells Dan that she's feeling a bit shaky and asks for a hug, and he goes to embrace her. She tells him she thinks it's funny that he was a bit jealous, and they confess their love to each other and begin to kiss passionately. Later, at a service station, Dan rolls down his window to talk to Mr. Haskell, played by Robert Bowler, the principal at Janet's school. Dan asks him about George Lemoyne, the man who sold the school the photography equipment. Haskell interrupts, saying that nobody has sold anything to the school and that they not only didn't buy it from him, they didn't buy any equipment at uh-huh. all. See, see? <laughs> you can trust that bitch. Oh my god, give it time. You're the worst. <laughs> Dan asks if it's possible that Haskell might not know about the transaction, and he scoffs a bit and says, "No, I am the principal," shutting that shit down right away. Dan apologizes, and the two go on their way. Also, oh, a principal of what? Like, is this like some sort of like charter school? Because he is so like, blah, 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 blah. like so pumped up. I mean, this. it's a small town, it's man. A weird it's ca- not an this is no i know it's not like harvard Harvard prep yeah no i know (laughs) i never (laughs) i know i mean i guess when you're in a small town you take every little bit of clout you can get I i guess i don't know yeah in a hospital room we see medical monitors working as a man who is fully wrapped in bandages lies in bed a nurse whispers to the doctor saying that George's vitals look much better today. So I'm guessing the sheriff called the hospital to tell everybody the patient's name because she calls out George <laughs> Lemoyne. He's not and a John I'm Doe. Like, He's not a John Doe anymore. <laughs> no. So I'm guessing sheriff was like, hey, hospital, hi. That weird guy, that weird burning guy, his name's George Lemoyne." Okay, thanks, bye. Like, I don't know. It's a small town world where it travels fast, I guess. Like super fast, <laughs> like through the walls and through the air. The doctor, played by Joseph Medalis and credited only as doctor. He has no name the rest of the, uh, all in the film. They call him doc- the doctor. The doctor refused the chart, saying that it's time for the man's medication. He tells the nurse to give the patient 50 cc's and then he'll be back within the hour. Just as he's about to leave, Dan comes in, telling the doctor that he heard Georges come out of the coma and asking how he's doing. The doctor says it's touch and go, but that he might pull through, but there's nothing that even plastic surgery will be able to do about his face and his lost eye. Dan pleads with the doctor to try to talk to the man, and the doctor hesitates, escorting Dan from the room. Dan gets angry, saying that he has to learn what happened, and the doctor keeps telling him to just sit down. Dan asks if George has said anything at all. And the doctor says no. And what's more, he'll be very difficult to understand because he doesn't have any lips anymore. He's <laughs> yeah. like,
1: oh, they, um,
0: they've my sho- bad. <laughs> they've shot to him by now. Like, they've shot to this guy all wrapped up like a mummy by now, correct? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, we like, see him. he, I think the thing that is most off-putting is that, like, jack-o'-lantern smile that freaks me out the most about George because his face is wrapped up and where his lips would be is it's like... It's just teeth. It's just teeth. Well, I mean, and you can see in the very first effect shot we get when he's yeah. burnt that there's... It's just like... It's me- meat. It's melty. It's yeah. like melty face. It's very melty face. But and, no, like, and no lips. Yeah. As the two men talk in the hall, a nurse enters the patient's room. Nurse Lisa, the beautiful blonde woman from the beach. Bitch is back. She says, hello, Freddy, calling him by the nickname she gave him. And we can see in George's eyes that he is absolutely terrified. Nurse Lisa says that she's glad to see he's feeling better and that he should just lie still while she gives him something that will make him feel even better. He begins to shake in terror, the beeping on the medical monitors growing faster and faster, and Nurse Lisa takes out a large syringe, plunging it directly into George's eye. Okay, so this is the worst porno ever. <laughs> Taking this back to the Megaplex. I'm returning it. Nothing hot has happened yet. <laughs> Could not tap to this. We got, like, <laughs> we got like four seconds of boobs and like he's already been... I know he's got a needle in the eyeball. <laughs> and no lips. <laughs> this is not hot. <laughs> <laughs> We go back out into the hall where Dan and the doctor continue to talk, watching Nurse Lisa leave the room briskly. Suddenly an alarm goes off as George dies, and Dan and the doctor rush to the room to see George in the bed with the needle still sticking out of his eye socket. It looks so realistic, right? Oh so oh. this whole
1: this whole thing <laughs> no, is great. I and I feel like no. this
0: I feel like either this or the burning head has to be the most noteworthy kind of well, no, I take that back. There's more. Man, there's a better. There's, there's so more. many. Anyway, please talk about there's this. There's more line. and I've got I got I got all the tea on all of it. So, um Stan Stan Winston said making the eye completely organic took a lot of energy to guarantee that the actress would poke the eye correctly in each take. They filmed the shot in reverse. There was a tiny hole drilled into the center of the eye, so that the shot started with the needle already embedded in the hole, and the eyelid closed. On action, the actress pulled the needle out, and the eyelid opened. Fling open. Right. In the movie, the audience sees the action in reverse, so that she appears to jab the needle in perfectly, really selling that what you're seeing is real. And then Stan went on went on to say, "I remember vividly how much energy I put into every lash being perfect, that the movement of the lids was perfect that the eye movement was was organic and that everything about the close-up would be completely organic so that it would hold up on screen. I tell you what oh looking God. at it with a 2022 eye which is you know we're we've seen CG after CG I mean like we've seen it all I can see like if you look really closely Which I did because I'm always Going to watch effect stuff really closely mm-hmm. I'm like okay yeah I can tell That the eye was like maybe Not maybe not real But like it Holds up so well And that's the thing like In, a, in the 21st century because we rely So heavily on CG because it's Available and it's easy mm-hmm. and I mean We've advanced technology to where we can Make things look very realistic long gone are the days of this painstaking long arduous makeup effects process so i am always 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 so impressed when there's when there's this this level of meticulousness mm-hmm. to the details well and you know i i fear that practical effects and makeup effects are going to kind of become a lost art and i'm always so happy to see teams like K and you know KM like and, and people who like, do practical effects right. work and the movie's like the what was it of Shape them. of Water or whatever that came out that had some really good practical effects in it with I haven't seen it yet no I haven't seen it either but oh. I'm sure you've seen Shots of the Creature I have oh yeah but like... The, that was our boy, wasn't it? That Dungeon. was... Yes, we so like to out. see movies like that come yes. back with a little bit of, of emphasis put back into practical effects. I think when you use CG and practical together, you get just the most amazing oh results. Yeah. We're a whole worlds are created. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, back in 81 when this was made, it's, it's just stellar. Um, and... The reason for building the full body of Bandage Freddy was to be able to move up the body, showing the shocked face with the eye and then the needle all in one shot. Mm -hmm. So though filmed as one camera move, the director decided to cut it where you see his view of the actress just before the needle goes into the eye. Um, Stan said um, at the time that he wrote this that he had watched it re- recently and the effect, effect holds up and it's a pretty tough one to watch having the needle jabbed into someone's eye and it gives a, it gave him a lot of pleasure to know that he brought that kind of gruesome gruesomeness to screen yeah. which is another reason I love Stan Winston because he's like super gross and I um, love and it I love it which is me I'm like oh that's gnarly that's so awesome <laughs> play it again oh I feel sick let's do it again yeah <laughs> <laughs> <Some> <laughs> machete crashed into the window with fucking entrails or whatever. Um, yeah, so uh th- again, there will be more. There's more. There's always more. But 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 the whole body was a puppet. The whole body was actually a puppet. That was not puppet. an actor in I maybe possibly for like the first part, but the entire bandaged torso and everything that yeah. had that was all fake. A puppet. It was yeah. all a puppet. It's yeah. Incredible. Yeah. In the next scene, we see a man covering a freshly dug grave with a headstone that reads George Lemoyne, itinerant, age 30, approximate. Dan looks on as Dobbs approaches him. Dobbs saying that he's disappointed that Dan couldn't get an official ID on the victim. Dan asks why Dobbs cares so much. And Dobbs says that now he has to bury a sealed casket in the ground. And that the man's family won't get to see the deceased and the work of artistry that an open casket burial would afford them. Dude, what the... uh, Dude, get off it. Yeah. Okay, I'm so sorry that nobody can see your pretty makeup. But like, (laughs) a man's dead and fuck off. Dan says that Dobbs makes him sick. And Dobbs claps right back, saying that Dan brings him a burnt body that smells like cooked steak and makes him keep it until it begins to rot. And Dobbs is the one that makes him sick. He's like angry. (laughs) He's growling. Dan says that two people have been murdered recently, two strangers in such a tiny town, and that Dobbs needs to leave him alone. Yeah, I think Dobbs like, <laughs> is off the rails. I Dobbs w- is like... This a, was the moment when he was like, he smells like Cook State, and you let him sit around and I'm like, whoa, Grandpa Joe is pissed. And I was not happy. Time, at the same time, I was totally sucked in. I was like, I've got to see where this goes. Well, and look, Jack Albertson is, I mean, he won an Oscar. I can't remember what for Like he's a good actor and he sinks his teeth into this role as the weird, you know, eccentric mortician or whatever. And he's great in it. Yeah. Um, I do believe this was his last film role. He was was. very, very sick with cancer. Um, I think during this and um, even to the premiere like he had to come in like a wheelchair Wheelchair. and stuff and so it's I'm glad that his final role for me was such an entertaining one and so intense Iconic and like again it does not this movie does not have enough like it's not big enough how did I never see this movie before girl I'm just glad we watched it now because I would have been pissed had I gone my whole life without seeing this movie yes absolutely Later that night, we see Janet return home to the Gillis house. She's carrying shopping bags and opens the front door to find the sheriff waiting for her in the dimly lit living room. He asks her where she's been and she says that she had errands to run, Mr. Haskell scheduled a staff meeting, and that tonight is PTA and would Dan like to come? He says no, and she says that for dinner, he has either a choice of fish sticks or beef stroganoff, but unfortunately, they're both from a package. She seems, like, incredibly Stepford wifey Oh, my here. God, right? Robotic. Yes, and just, then also, like, you're a school teacher, right? Like, why are you, she's, like, she's, like, got a cape on, I like, just... a, a cape coat with that <laughs> Yeah, extreme. just very like elegant, elegant for a small Vanna, town Vanna in Dana Whiting around just like Blanche Devereaux around yeah. the around the middle of the living room and I'm like what is happening? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Go off, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Janet finally stops talking long enough to realize that Dan is that Dan seems out of sorts and she asks him what's wrong. And Dan says that it's nothing. It's just the murders that are getting to him. She says, "Oh yeah, the murder's horrible." Anyway, I have to go. What? The- <laughs> <And> she, <laughs> She's just like, "Bye," and then asks Dan to drop off some film to get developed, some projects that her students shot. Janet gives Dan a kiss saying that she knows he'll catch the murderer and she leaves saying that she'll be back early. She like does not she want to be, talk about she cannot it. be less interested in like the, Seriously she goes the fact oh, that the there murders. might be ca- like murderers out there. Murderers, horrible. I have to go. PTA meeting. Bye, 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 bye. Okay. <laughs> The next shot opens with a car pulling up to the Potter's Bluff Cafe with a couple, Ron, played by Dennis Redfield, and Linda, played by Nancy Locke, and their son, Jamie, played by Mark and Michael Courtney. Ron says he's just going to run in really quick to ask for directions, and Linda tells him not to forget to ask about gas. Jamie plays with a toy airplane and makes airplane noises, and Linda kisses him on the head. Inside the cafe, Ron walks to the counter and tells Midge the waitress that he's lost. She asks where he's trying to go and Ron says the Sea View Lodge. Midge smiles, telling him he's not lost and that he just needs to take Highway 12. Linda and Jamie come into the cafe too. Linda's saying that Jamie needs to use the restroom and Midge comments on how cute Jamie is. Midge says she can take him to the bathroom, but Jamie shakes his head. She guesses that he wants his mom and dad to take him and he shakes his head again. Midge asks what does he want And he pipes up ice cream Midge laughs and says that she's so sorry But they don't have any Ron says that they'll get him some later And Linda reminds Ron to ask about gas Midge says hey Freddie Will you sell these people some gas We see a man turn around Dressed in a service station uniform And it is Freddie A.K.A. George Lemoyne Burn man A.K.A. burnt to a crisp photography man Yeah He smiles and says, sure, that the gas station's just down the street. It just occurred to me right here at this point in the movie that this movie is a different burn guy named Freddy with Robert England in it movie. (laughs) That's right. It's not Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the other one. Yeah. (laughs) Freddy gets up to escort the family to the gas station, and Midge comments that the people must be from the city and not used to all this small town hospitality. After the couple I guess, I guess you're used to people being real real dick's, dicks huh? <laughs> After the couple leaves Midge and Harry peek out the front door of the diner to watch as Ron and Linda pull away The shot cuts to the car driving down the road at night with Ron commenting that he's having a hard time seeing driving in all this fog Something suddenly runs in front of the car and Ron swerves Linda screams and the car crashes into a telephone pole Linda asks why Ron swerved and he swears he saw something run into the road. We hear Jamie whimper crying in the back seat and Linda starts to soothe him. She suddenly sees a light in the distance and tells Ron. He says he doesn't see any light but she insists that she saw it. They fuss with each other for a second about whether the light does or doesn't exist and whether or not someone did or didn't run across the road, but they finally decide to walk up to the nearby house to see if there's a phone they can use or some ice they can put on Jamie's bumped head. Linda knocks on the front door, which opens on its own. That's never a good sign. Yeah. Linda hesitantly steps inside, calling out that they've had an accident out front of the house and just need a little help. This reminded me of... I'm injured in need of some help Like from American Horror Story Season 1 Yes, The house is dark and creepy and Ron comments That nobody's home but Linda says That maybe they're upstairs remarking again That she saw a light and she continues To yell for help Is anybody here Like it's fucking annoying This entire family I cannot wait For you to die Ron is annoyed but follows Linda Upstairs holding Jamie who still Whimpers in pain we get an outside-looking-in shot of someone watching the family through the window as they make their way around the house looking for assistance. The couple continues to whisper-argue about whether or not there was ever a light in the house, and suddenly the top of a grand piano falls down with a loud crash. Jamie whine cries even louder, and Ron apologizes for scaring him. And Dad just forgets to kind of like just casually knock his head into the door frame and let him just silence him for a little bit. So this, this continually <laughs> crying kid... Oh, I don't know. He fell asleep. (laughs) Just limp in my arms and went to sleep real quick. (laughs) I don't know what happened. He just fell asleep real quick. So, this continually crying kid is the real horror in this movie, and this makes me realize I don't think I'm cut out to be a parent. (laughs) Nope. i am not <laughs> ron demands that they need to get out of there that nobody's there it's dark and linda says no somebody is here they're just fixing the fuses in the basement this lady i fucking swear like how do you know she's like oh they're just downstairs fixing the fuses bitch there's nobody home that place is abandoned like get out yeah whatever she's an idiot Ron hands Jamie over to Linda, saying that he will go locate the basement, and Linda tells him to hurry. Yeah, take this fucking kid. So he's already cracked the head of the kid against the wall, and now I'm sorry, but he needs to smack his wife in the (laughs) mouth. She's fucking mouthy, and she's (laughs) she's, she's irritating. I get that she's scared, but she's like... Lost all logic at this point. Listen, we're pacifists, but, like, these people... And the the feminists, and I'm, like, hit this woman (laughs) (laughs) in the mouth. Hit your child and hit the woman, please. I can't take (laughs) it. Maybe I was just feisty when I was writing this script. (laughs) I don't know. I hated this kid and this woman. (laughs) You're not alone. (sighs) Ron makes his way through the dark halls and into the basement while Linda holds Jamie upstairs. Ron lights a match, not able to see anything in the basement. Upstairs, we see the silhouette of a figure outside the window where Linda is holding Jamie. And she calls out to Ron, getting a bit tense. Linda leaves the room with Jamie, heading into the kitchen and looking in the fridge for some ice for Jamie's head. She stands up and screams as she notices someone behind her, but it's just Ron. He reiterates that there's nobody in the basement and that they should just leave. And just then, a figure comes smashing through the large window of the room they were just in. Camera lights start flashing and Herman, holding a cleaver, leans into the broken window and says, Welcome to Potter's Bluff. A crowd has somehow gathered in the home, waiting in a sinister manner and all armed with weapons. Ron and Linda head to leave through a door, but open it to see Midge the waitress holding a knife, smiling. They scream and try another door, but Freddy's behind it. The family makes their way to a window and Ron breaks it, sending her out first and then hands her Jamie. I mean, Chucky, because this is clearly a good guy's doll that gets handed out the window. That kid is not a kid. That is a dummy. Yeah, that's not a real kid. Also, this is this. Oh, this scene too is like so creepy it's oh it's this is my nightmare by the way like uh, it is it is very like the qualities of this so one thing that the um director did that gary sherman did was to not use he tried to limit his use as much as possible in this movie of the color red so there's a very blue and black yeah. and purple and cool tinge to everything. Yeah, I think he said he even, um, the taillights on some of the cars, he kind of covered up with tape to make them look purple. Because he didn't, yeah. he, he wanted any red that you see to be the blood to be more yeah. shocking when you saw it. Yeah, And in this house, everything's very dark, very blue. And it. you're right, it's got like... Like, if you think about the cover of The Exorcist, how he's just standing there in that streetlight and it's very, like watch that one right there on the wall <laughs> <laughs> that i'm pointing at right now um it's just like very washed out yeah. and everything's in silhouette but you have like all these people that are just like kind of expressionless almost mm-hmm. with weapons coming after your ass for no for no damn good reason <laughs> like, right and shooting and shooting pictures of you the entire time and telling you smile that's what's fucked up is like smile and then welcome to potter's bluff yeah, fuck this down. And I think I, I think I might have even told you, like right about here, like this movie, like I would watch, I would watch, I would watch a remake of this movie because I feel like it would translate to the twenty first century so well. I would also, but I am also sick of Hollywood. Hesitantly, I'm also sick of Hollywood just remaking yeah. old shit. So I kind of want to. I- very much. Leave this one alone. But Third, I get it. I get I'm it. The premise is good. The it, premise is good. The, let's just say the premise holds up. You yeah. can you can translate it to the 21st century very easily. Yeah. Ron climbs out the window last and the couple shimmies down the balcony onto the first floor, both of them yelling and screaming as the Potter's Bluff citizens continue to slowly pursue them. Ron and Linda run around the corner of the house and are immediately hit with a large floodlight by one of the citizens. They run towards the car while the citizens file out of the front door, shambling slowly towards them. It's like they're not even in a hurry. The family Mm. finally reaches the car, but of course it won't start because this is a horror movie and we get a cool shot of the group of people backlit by the street lamps as they menacingly approach the car. It's a very cool shot. It's like they're walking out of the fog. It's neat. Ron continues to try to start the car and suddenly a woman pops up from the back seat, grabbing Jamie and dragging him into the back. Ron and Linda shout, wrestling with the woman and trying to get Jamie back, and Linda grabs the woman's hair, which probably causes the woman's scalp to rip off in Linda's hand. That's not normal. Way too easy. It sounds like Velcro. She's all... (laughs) And there's her hair. (laughs) Got your hair right here. (laughs) They're able to push the woman out of the car, and they shut and lock the doors. And finally, the car starts, and they speed away past the crowd of encroaching murder citizens. Just as they think they're in the clear, the scalpless woman appears on the hood of the car, smashing the windshield while Ron tries to swerve the woman free. She finally sails off and we get a shot of the family speeding past the welcome to Potter's bluff sign. Yeah, mate. I'm (laughs) out. Fuck this town. No, thank you. I'm done. In the next scene, Dan's driving through town when he suddenly sees the family car speeding by. He starts to go after them, but immediately hits a person who suddenly crossed his path. Alarmed, he gets out to check on the victim, but as he bends down to inspect them, he's startled by a touch to the side of his face. When he turns around, he sees a disembodied arm stuck in the grill of his truck, moving and grasping at him. Yeah, that's not what the that's not that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> I don't think that's right. Uh, arms don't do that. <laughs> The body that had been laying in front of the car is now standing and he karate chops Dan in the neck, sending him to the ground. The body runs off and Dan runs after him, scaling a fence to follow. Dan searches the nearby area with a flashlight, gun drawn. He sees a barn door creaking and cautiously heads into the barn. Inside, he searches slowly and quietly, slowly and quietly, slowly and quietly. (laughs) This fucking scene took forever. Until he's startled out of his wits by a bird, which he promptly shoots at. (laughs) The look on Dan's face says that he's starting to lose his grip a bit, and he leaves the barn. Dude's, like, trigger-happy. Yeah. Also, uh, the severed arm and the grill. Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah. So the arm was a moving prosthetic, a simple hand-and-rod puppet made by Stan Winston Mm -hmm. before the advent of the complicated animatronics and robotics that we, Mm. like, get used to that, like, happened in the thing and stuff like that yeah um the puppeteer the actress was inside the hood of the car oh shit with her hand puppeteering the hand of the severed arm and then there was a rod operating the back of the arm so it had all of the it's all of this life and movement that's so
1: again right
0: i'm like now i just want to watch and fast forward through the plot to just be like how did that how was that done i'm so obsessed with this shit Later at the Gillis house Janet is sitting at the dining table Polishing the silver And Ben calls out to her Asking her if she's seen any shells As he rummages through a drawer She asks When were you at the beach? And Dan sighs Saying bullets, Janet Bullets (laughs) He's like I can't with you tonight I can't out with you tonight Shells, did you want stuffed pasta? Like (laughs) Janet shut up (laughs) he continues looking through the drawers when he comes across a book titled Witchcraft and Voodooism he opens the book to a marked page and reads aloud An ancient folklore has that they can only be made from persons dying a violent death he lifts a cloth that had been sitting next to the book in the drawer and uncovers a dagger the handle decorated with what looks like a carving of a demon Dan screams Janet's name, walking into the dining room and asking her what she's doing with the book and the dagger. She nonchalantly says that she's about to teach her class a unit on witchcraft. Dan asks why the hell she wanted to teach that to her students, and Janet says that kids like creepy things, and she doesn't know why she has to defend herself to him and that he's interrogating her like a suspect. Dan sighs and apologizes, saying that he's just been under a ton of pressure. Janet asks him if he remembered to drop the film off at Ernie's and he says he forgot but promises to take care of it when he sees Janet get upset. She then says he found his bullets right where he left them and she throws the box at him clearly pissed off. So this is at the height of the satanic panic, isn't it? In the eighties? Um or was that later eighties? Maybe a little later. This maybe this was kind of the first like rumblings of it. Yeah, I don't, just, I don't they, know I mean know there the were timeline. a lot of there were a lot of movies around this time, like and after, about like, oh, it's something supernatural, it's witchcraft, mm-hmm. it's Satan. Um so him being just like completely like, What are you doing in this book? Who taught you to use this? I learned it by <laughs> watching you. Yeah. So I always, uh, as a kid, because I obviously am interested in all things satanic and all things occult and all things. Like, I love all of that shit and I read all of that yeah, shit. Yeah, just to learn about it. And I've it. got those books all around my house, man. Like, I do Yeah, don't know. but like having it like hidden in a drawer when... With a dagger. With a dagger that's like carved in... Like, it's a little in... convenient. I mean, uh, they, they seem like a very perfectly waspy little couple. So I can see why he'd be a little... What the fuck yeah. is going on? Well, yeah, as opposed to me, who well, just eh, where's my witchy on my on my sleeve? I'm like, what? Are you? <laughs> take a take a look at my big black book. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Dan goes to Ernie, played by Bill Quinn, to drop off Janet's film. This is this part is just for you. So this guy, Bill Quinn, the mm-hmm. guy in the photography department mm-hmm. um, shop, he was in Twilight Zone, the movie in kick the can he was the grumpy old one that refused to go with them until the very end when he's like i want to go too that's him oh my god that's that's just for you though oh (laughs) i was like i know that guy dan asks ernie to develop the film as soon as possible police business ernie says that it should be back by wednesday and dan tells him not to let anyone else pick it up the next scene opens with a disgusting bowl of oatmeal on a desk next to a phone, and we hear Dan tell Dobbs on the phone that the county will foot the bill for the preparation of the fisherman's body. Nobody ever eats oatmeal, oatmeal in movies. Why do people make it? Nobody it, ever eats it. No, it just sat there, and it's it doesn't look good on camera. It looks fucking nasty. <laughs> Dobbs asks if the county will also foot the bill for reconstructing his mutilated face. Dan tells Dobbs angrily to just stick him in a sealed box and plunk him into the ground. He then asks about George Lemoyne and what Dobbs thinks about his hunch. Dobbs agrees that Dan might be right. He may have been placed in the car after the fact to make it look like an accident. Dan asks why the same thing wasn't done with the fisherman, and Dobbs snidely retorts that he's not the detective. Dan is. Dobbs sarcastically tells Dan to keep up the good work and hangs up the phone with a smirk and Dan looks just annoyed as hell. (laughs) These two have an interesting relationship. I know. On the beach, Harry sits in his tow truck and talks with Dan on the radio, telling him that he just pulled a late model Ford out of the water. Dan asks if anyone was in it and Harry says no, just a small toy airplane. So Uh, that's the family car. Yeah. Dobbs leaves the sheriff's office, bringing an evidence bag to scrape some of the arm particles off of his grill. On the phone with the doctor, Dan tells him that he wants to send the sample in to see if the particles contain any skin that might be from a hit-and-run victim. Yeah. The doctor says he'll give the sample a full workup and that Dan needs to get it to him fairly soon. Just then, Ben, the motel owner, rushes into Dan's office yelling. Dan asks him what's wrong, and Ben stammers that the man that Dan had come to see him about last week, the photographer, well, Ben just saw him down at the service station. Dan laughs, asking what the hell Ben's talking about, and Ben, white as a sheet, insists that it's not just a man that looks like George Lemoyne; it is him, and that Dan needs to go look. Dan says that won't help because he never actually saw the guy. And then says again with his weird ass accent, go ask your wife. <laughs> ask your wife. <laughs> this actually plays one more time in the movie that like him saying that. And I'm just like, this is go ask your wife. Like in this <laughs> accent is, is the tagline for the movie. <laughs> the next scene starts with Janet in her classroom giving a lesson about voodoo, which I mean, who supervises the curriculum? I don't know, like, how old are these children? Like, like 10? maybe no, a little older, maybe sixth or seventh grade. But like, I would have loved a lesson in school about voodoo, yes. But I seriously doubt that like a school board or a principal no. or anyone had any kind of approval over this <laughs> small town curriculum. I don't. I mean, what is happening? Maybe they don't, well, I mean, I don't know. So she gives the lesson about voodoo while Dan walks down the hall towards her classroom janet continues saying that voodoo is basically a religion and that belief and conversion are necessary for its practices to work it's not basically a religion No, i know
1: (laughs) i'm just quoting
0: the movie she said basically a white woman white woman says it's basically a religion yeah She says that despite what kids may have seen in horror movies, that they do not walk around like this and does an exaggerated George Romero, Night of the Living Dead-esque, stiff-armed zombie walk towards a student and the kids all laugh. Coming to get you, Barbara. (laughs) Dan watches through the classroom window with a smile on his face, but the smile fades as he listens to Janet continue, saying that though the zombies are conventionally dead, they can very closely imitate the living, and that there are even reports of a tribe that's made up of large numbers of zombies, all at the control of the will of their master, and they would kill strangers and bring them back as offerings to the master. Janet says that the really creepy part is that the master, in order to keep control over the undead, had to cut out the corpses' hearts and hide them. And the kids all go ew, but I'd be like Jesus Christ! I, I would, I would too. But I also, <laughs> I might be that weird kid at the back who's like, actually, I don't think that's voodoo at all. <laughs> and I read that. <laughs> oh God! Like you need to learn. My, My sister's sister. so challenging, challenging the woman about her knowledge oh, no. of voodoo. My sister a witch actually <laughs> the bell rings and the camera zooms in on dan's very unsettled face in the car later dan asks janet how come the principal didn't know anything about the photography equipment janet says that dan's big mouth ruined the surprise of the pta buying the equipment for the school he apologizes and janet realizing that they're pulling into the gas station says that they don't need gas because she just filled up this morning Dan says he realizes that But he mansplains to Janet That the car is a piece of machinery (laughs) And needs more than just gas It needs to have its oil and water checked too I was like fuck you (laughs) Fuck you Dan I'm sorry my womanly uterus Couldn't possibly (laughs) comprehend What the fuck a car needs (laughs) Dick Freddie then leans down into the window to see what Dan needs and Dan Dan tells him to check under the hood. Freddie and Janet make eye contact and to Dan's surprise or relief, I can't tell which, Janet does not show any inkling that she recognizes Freddie. She leans over to Dan and says that she'll check the oil, she'll check the water, but right now she just wants a kiss. They're very affectionate but also very strange. Yeah. Also a weird time to like your husband... I mean, I, don't know. I guess you randomly could kiss your husband in any part of the day, but it's just a random time to. They have nothing else to do; they're just sitting around waiting. <laughs> don't make that face at me. <laughs> don't kissy face at me. It's weird. Don't make a kissy face to your sister. <laughs> you did it with like an eyebrow waggle too, so it's, it makes it worse. Don't hide from our love. <laughs> That's what you did. The next scene shows a young woman Played by Lisa Marie on the side of the road Hitchhiking An old blue truck stops to talk to her A, a man in an old blue truck The truck doesn't stop to talk to her That's a very different <laughs> movie I just realized I wrote that totally weird What is it? Tater? Or whatever <laughs> oh, mater. Name is, oh, mater Mater from Cars <laughs> Get, Get her done, done. <laughs> A man in an old blue truck stops to talk to her, asking her if she's sure she wants a ride with him, because how does she know he's not a dirty old man? Nope, I'm good, sir. I won't now get the next one. Now that you fucking one. said that. Catch the next one. I'm out, peace. Your dong's probably out in there. Like, I don't, I'm not getting in right. that truck. You're. Yep. Just hit the suggestion, sir. Oh. I will be fine here. I will wait the next car. She kind of laughs it off a bit and asks how far he's going. The unseen man says he's going up to Potter's Bluff and asks if she's ever been there. She says no, and he says that she'll really like it. She introduces herself as Chance and hops in the truck with the unseen man, and he tells her that she should think about spending time in Potter's Bluff, that it's much nicer than the big city with all of its killers and muggers. (laughs) They pull into a boatyard, and the man says, hey, there's my boat. The hitchhiker asks the man if he lives on a boat, and he says, all my life. The man says he just needs to get something out of his glove box and reaches over to get a camera. He puts it to his face, which we finally see, and it is the old murdered fisherman. Don't tell him about boats. (laughs) Don't tell him about boats. (laughs) He tells the hitchhiker to smile and snaps a photo, and she's pulled from the truck and down into the mud. The citizens of Potter's Bluff snap photos again and again as the hitchhiker asks why the asks what they're doing and screams in protest and fear and one of the old men lifts a large boulder above his head we hear a crunch and the screen goes black yeah 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 we, we next see the hitchhiker's body on the road covered with a sheet as Dan inspects it we quickly move into Dobbs' mortuary where he lifts the sheet and comments on how lovely young and frail the young woman is asking aloud how anyone could ruin such loveliness We get a shot of an absolutely masterful and hideous sculpture of the hitchhiker's mangled face. Oh my god, it's so gnarly. So Dobbs promises the corpse that he will make her even more beautiful than before and in what I think is the best sequence of the entire film, Dobbs goes to work. We get a sequence of Dobbs repairing the face from the musculature up, the dissonance of the score juxtaposed with the light hearted big band music playing in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We see Dobbs play We see Dobbs last placing two new eyes into the empty sockets and he pronounces his masterpiece complete. He bends down to kiss the hitchhiker on the forehead telling her that she can now rest peacefully. Dobbs turns off the music and the lights and leaves the room all the while the focus remaining on the hitchhiker's face as she lays on the table. Just as soon as Dobbs has closed the door a figure in a dark coat and gloves approaches the body and caresses her face. The hitchhiker slowly sits up Opening her eyes and peering directly into the camera. Yeah, there's so I got fucking chills watching this yeah, segment. I too. It is masterful. It's, it's the art. Only, it's, it's art. It is the only way I can think of to explain the scene. Yeah. Stan Winston. So, oh my god, Stan Winston. And there is so much to tell here. So yes, I have, I'm going to get I into want this. all of it. All right, so. Stan Winston said, and I quote, that he started a life cast of Lisa Marie and then he created a clay replica. Then he started literally carving away her face section by section. Mm. Um, He says, since I had the original casting of her skin, I was able to actually take the final skin and lay it over the entire puppet. He said he calls it a puppet because what he added layer by layer was the skull, the muscles, and the skin that all came back together to recreate Lisa Marie. He was able then to pull the lips back and check the teeth, pull the eyelid back and see the eye, and then pull the other eyelid back to find that the socket is still empty. There's more, mm. though the care through though the character Dobbs is the surgeon played by Jack Albertson. It appears to be it, that appears to be manipulating the face. Those fa- fa- those hands, in fact, do belong to Stan Winston mm-hmm. himself. I did know that, which is so cool that yeah. he was just like, eh, "Let me get in there real quick. Right. I'm gonna take care of this." Which is, I'm I out. mean, you can kind of tell because it's the difference between an old man's hands and, and not. like a, a younger man's. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stan revealed that the hands that are actually doing the operation in the film are mine, and then. And we did a wonderful trick move I pulled my hands out and Jack Albertson brought his hands up from the shot with the white gloves and made his remark what a masterpiece completed beautiful mm-hmm. <sighs> it's so good it's so good to me if you want to look at an example of what incredibly skilled craftsmanship looks like yeah. for a makeup or for a puppetry build in horror I mean yeah there's also, a, just also just not even not okay. Even if your art, uh, your art is not makeup effects, because my my particular my particular art of choice is like portraiture and stuff. Yeah. So looking at like. Just the bones, and then just the muscles, and mm-hmm. then just the skin. Oh, it's all I'm anatomy. Like, it's I'm like, just a okay. different way of portraying <laughs> pause it. Pause this and sketch this real quick. It's it is so beautiful. freaking cool. And one more thing, I'm just gonna say one more thing. Um, Stuff like this is done to like Jane Doe skulls found in the desert and shit. Yes. Like there are people yes. who actually did this. That's how they recreate like missing persons' faces yes. if they find remains. Mm-hmm. I mean. It has practical real world yeah. applications too. But yeah. oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> if um, you, num, num, num. I'm just saying, listeners, if you haven't seen the movie, just go find the scene of the recreation yeah. and sculpt of the hitchhiker's face in this movie. It's phenomenal. It's on prime. Go it's on prime. You oh watch it. nice not non-spun that's fine in the next scene dan is asked by the doctor if the sample he submitted was mixed up with another piece of evidence because there's no way that the sample he submitted was from a recent hit and run victim the death of the tissue indicates it was from a body that had been dead for at least three or four months the doctor says this couldn't have been from a recent hit and run right dan is in shock asking the doctor if he's absolutely sure and the doctor confirms that he is Dan mutters that the doctor's wrong. He knows he is. Dan leaves and the doctor heads back into the lab, puzzling over the results. He begins to run another test on the sample and places a slide under the microscope. He says aloud, it can't be, and picks up the phone to call the sheriff. Betty answers and the doctor asks to speak with Dan, but she says he's not in yet. He asks where Dan is, panic in his voice, and Betty says she can try to track him down. With a clear note of urgency, the doctor says no, that he'll go track him down, and he hangs up the phone. Just as he hangs up, he's grabbed from behind, and we see that Harry, Midge, and Nurse Lisa have appeared in his office. Mm-hmm. They force the doctor onto his back, and Nurse Lisa approaches him with two tubes used to dispense acid. We know that it's acid because the doctor says, no, don't, that's acid. <laughs> Oh, good. I was worried it was water. Thank God. (laughs) Nurse Lisa inserts the tubes into his nose and the machine is switched on. And in a hilarious and subpar makeup effect, we see the doctor's head start to bubble and melt from the inside. Uh. Jimmy, Jimmy, the mortuary assistant, is there to take pictures as the doctor's head melts away from the inside and he dies. I could tell by looking at this, this could not have been Stan Winston's work. Couldn't have been. There's no way. It's not Stan Winston. Okay. It, it's I was like, Stan this Winston. looks fucking stupid when this came up. I was like, uh, was Stan what, drunk? But who, was he drunk that who, what day? Now? Is this an intern? Like, like what, the fuck what happened? happened? Um, it is a. It's it's just fine for any other low budget movie. Like, it's just low, fine yes. for. But like. It sticks out like a sore thumb against the precision of skill that uh, Winston produced. So yeah, I could they could have left the scene out and like explained that something happened to the doctor by how bad of a taste this left in my mouth. And I was so after like after we had just seen that amazing scene, yeah. with Lisa Marie, then we get this, and then we get this fucking garbage. And this is this is what I kind of thought we were in for. Like when we do. I when I saw, you know, when I decided on the movie, I'm like, this is probably the level of effects we're probably going to get from a movie of this era. So in the beginning of the film, the um, fisherman I think was not initially supposed to die on camera, but they decided. Later on in the shoot that like they actually wanted to show the fisherman's death. Uh huh. Stan Winston had to work up something for him really quick. Yeah. You know, getting slashed by the harpoon or whatever. Yeah. And he kinda had time to do one or Or the the other. other. And so this was handed off to a different effects team. And Stan had nothing to do with this. So don't worry. We still love him. We're still on board with his work. This was not his work. We still stand Stan. We still stand Stan oh my god it's so bad it was really awful hilariously bad dan has arrived back at the sheriff's office to find dobbs waiting for him dan asks dobbs what he wants starting to say that he doesn't have time to beat around the bush and dobbs tells him not to get all pushy because this is embarrassing for him dan says what's embarrassing and dobbs says that he's there to report a theft the theft of a body the hitchhiker's gone missing Dan asks if someone dug up the grave and Dobbs says he was going to lay her to rest this morning, but she was gone. Dan loses his shit, asking what the hell is going on in this town that first it's murders and now it's body snatching. And also there was a moving arm in my grill, but we're I, not going to well, talk my, about that. I don't want to talk about that because <laughs> that's a little too crazy. And so, like, I'm just going to keep down with it myself. Right. He quickly, Dan quickly moves towards the door, telling Dobbs that they need to go to his mortuary, but Dobbs stops him, saying they can't let anybody know. Dobbs' reputation's on the line, and who would want their dead family member cared for by a mortician who can't keep track of the bodies? Dan says that this whole thing is ridiculous, and Dobbs says that maybe he's overreacting and panicking a bit, and that maybe Jimmy the assistant just put the body in a drawer and forgot to tell him. So he says he'll go take a look and gets ready to leave. And Dan says, thanks. He's got enough to worry about between three dead bodies and the way his wife has been acting. Dobbs agrees that Janet has been acting weird lately. But Dan looks concerned, saying that Dobbs barely knows Janet. Dobbs Mm -hmm. states that she comes to visit him all the time. Didn't Dan know that? Dan eyes Dobbs suspiciously, asking if he's the reason that Janet has taken a sudden interest in witchcraft and voodoo. Dobbs says definitely not, and he's offended at her suggestion that he may have ties to the dark arts. Is he (laughs) Voldemort? Dan smirks, asking Dobbs if he thinks that the dead can come back to life. Dobbs says that in his line of work, that's not something he likes to think about. Dan puts his head in his hands, and Dobbs looks a bit astonished, asking Dan if he really believes that the missing body could have just gotten up and walked away. Dan utters the classic skeptics line, I don't know what to believe anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I And meanwhile, I would be screaming, don't fucking gaslight me. Some shit is happening. And I know you here. know about it, you motherfucker. Yeah. Just then, the phone rings. It's Betty calling to tell Dan that she's going to be late to work. She says her car won't start, and she barely lets Dan get a word in edgewise, but he's able to ask her if she could stop at Ernie's and check on the film that he dropped off to be developed. She asks him if he looked at the telex that came in from St. Louis about George Lemoyne. He hangs up and goes to look at it, reading out loud that there is a close to positive ID on Lemoyne and that they request that the body be transported because there are better facilities to handle it in St. Louis. Dan leaves the sheriff's office and walks out into the street, noting that there's an eerie silence and the street is completely empty of people. There's like nobody there, and it's it's like daytime. It's not like. You know 6am It's not It's very Very unsettling This is like This is like The Stephen King moment When he walked out I was like This feels like The stand (laughs) It's dairy out here man He heads across the street To the mortuary Calling out for Dobbs We see Jimmy In the prep room Using paints To perhaps Touch up a spot On his arm Mm. Dan catches him In the act Asking what he's doing And Jimmy says "Uh, Nothing I gotta go now And he rushes out With his school bugs. (laughs) Dan picks up the small jar of paint that Jimmy had set down, and it's labeled Mortician's Makeup, lifelike color, pale. Dan jogs out of the prep room, calling for Dobbs and eventually making his way into the cemetery. Sam, played by Michael Pataki, is kneeling at George LeMoyne's grave, and Dan approaches him to ask where Dobbs is. Sam says he hasn't seen him, and Dan tells Sam to grab a shovel because they're digging up George. Sam says he doesn't dig them up. He just buries them. But Dan says that Sam's going to dig this one up. Yeah. Sam says he can't do it without Dobbs' permission. And Dan says he'll take full responsibility and yells at Sam to get going. Sam starts to pickaxe the soil on the grave and Dan leaves, heading back inside the mortuary. He's still unable to locate Dobbs. As he runs back out the door, a morgue drawer opens by itself and the sheet covering the body is pushed aside by Dobbs, who I guess was taking a little nap inside. Yeah, that's where I take all my naps. In a morgue drawer? Yeah. It's cozy. Yeah. Back outside, Dan helps Sam lift the coffin from LeMoyne's grave. Dan tells Sam to open the box, but Sam refuses, saying that he doesn't want to see a rotting corpse. Dan yells that the box doesn't weigh enough to have a corpse in it. And sick of arguing, Dan pries open the simple pine box to reveal that the only thing inside of it is George's sweater tied into a bundle. Dan unties the bundle to find that there is a human heart protected inside. That heart does look really real. It looks really good. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, you know, held a human heart in my hands, but it looks great. It looks great. Well, let me tell No, I don't know. I really don't have any. Oh, I'm learning some shit about you on this <laughs> on this episode. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Outside the service station, the bell rings to indicate that a car is pulled up, and Freddie walks outside with a smile. He's caught off guard as a camera flashes in his face. Dan is pulled up to snap a couple of quick photos of Freddie, and he speeds off. Did, they, the, did this give you get, get out energy? Because as soon as he flashes the thing, the guy is like, what? <laughs> like his nose starts bleeding. He's <laughs> like, get out! Just <laughs> as as I saw it. I was like, no. Oh, <laughs> he's gonna go crazy. Back at the sheriff's office, Dan tells Betty, who has finally arrived to work, but she's caught painting her fingernails, to get on the telex and type the following message. That's just so unprofessional. Don't paint your face. I'm just kidding. No, it's just... What else are you going to do? No, it's just funny because, like, Betty is very much an older, like... If you think of, like, the secretary from Ferris Bueller's Day Off or the I, secretary from uh, Splash or from *Greece*, <laughs> yeah. like, kind of a, a doofy personality yeah, yeah, yeah. but sweet, yeah. that is exactly who this woman is. You just wear, expect her to be wearing a bra on the outside of her, like, on the outside well, of her, her shirt. because she got struck by lightning. That, yeah. was, that was Splash. Splash. Yeah. <laughs> Dan tells Betty, get on the telex and type the following message records division police Department Providence Rhode Island request immediate check on arrest records and or convictions of 1g William Dobbs male approximately 70 years of age six feet weight 140 present occupation funeral homeowner residence in Potter's Bluff since approximately spring 1970 six foot 140 that is a bean pole right that's like a bean pole Bean. yeah pole. it just weighs nothing yeah. Dan then asks Betty to send the Polaroid that he just took of Freddie to the police department in St. Louis and ask them if the man in the picture is their missing person. Betty tells Dan that Ernie said his film was ready and Dan leaves to pick it up. At the photo shop, Dan pays for the film, Ernie saying he's sorry it took so long. As Dan leaves without saying a word, Ernie removes his hand from his pocket, which we see is slashed and damaged. Oh, they got Ernie. Yeah. Outside, Dan literally bumps right into the doctor, who is way less melty than the last time we saw him. Yeah, what the heck what the fuck is happening? Dobbs is really good at his job. I don't know. Oh. I don't know. The doctor jokes that he hopes this wasn't just another hit and run, but Dan doesn't smile. He just looks shaken. The doctor asks Dan if he's okay and Dan said he's really not sure. The doctor tells him that police work is very stressful and Dan needs to take care of himself. Dan very seriously tells the doctor he needs to ask him something. In his professional opinion, is it possible to reanimate the dead and get them to walk around? The doctor laughs, saying that Dan's definitely been working too hard, but Dan says he's serious. He continues that the skin he had the doctor examine was actually taken from a body that Dan had hit with his car the night before Dan dropped off the sample, not the three or four months earlier that the results showed. Doc says that maybe when he was getting a tune-up on the car that the mechanic had scraped his arm on Dan's grill or something. Dan yells that the corpses have been disappearing from their graves, and the doctor says that while that's awful, the dead have not been reanimating, that's for sure. I mean, at this point, I uh, my rational brain in this, in this moment in time would be like, yeah, what Dan is saying is absolutely crazy. Right. And we know it's not crazy, but... Like, I want the doctor. I would I would probably be say like, the same thing. Like, so I'm going to call someone to come take to you come away. To talk to you. Because you have cracked up. <laughs> from down the street, Betty yells for Dan, telling him that the telex from Rhode Island's coming in. Dan jogs down to the sheriff's office, examining the film strip while he waits for the telex to arrive. Betty reads aloud as it comes in subject g william dobbs dismissed 10 october 1969 as chief pathologist providence evidence indicated that subject made unauthorized use of dead bodies in county morgue no build by grand jury Censured and ejected by Rhode Island Medical Society 30th November 1969 Subject left Rhode Island shortly thereafter I mean you're delivering this a very uh, at a very normal volume She's screaming over the telex Yeah the telex is fucking so loud. <laughs> loud Because it's basically I had to look up exactly what a yeah. telex was I knew it was similar to a fax machine um, it's a little before my time. Just it is a bit. yes. this is this is before our time. But basically, what a telex system is, it's like a series of connected typewriters. Um, they're still used in some fields for secure transmissions because right. it's not like a phone line where they can be tapped like it's right. very secure but it is like the sound of an old typewriter typing which is pretty loud so yeah. yeah no she's kind of screaming it over the over yeah the volume and then of it the like auto type is like when she what she's reading it's like auto typing onto this sheet of paper mm-hmm. all of the information she's getting so then she's just reading aloud or yelling aloud what she's reading through this telex it's actually a very cool little system but for for the time yeah for the time that it is but it is this giant lumbering machine and it sounds like a fucking i don't know like a lawnmower with a typewriter (laughs) attached it is so loud it's very loud dan bolts from the office leaving betty to wonder where he's going dan enters the gillis house calling for janet She's not around, and Dan opens the closet to retrieve the projector, but we can see in the background that the floodlight used by the Potter's Bluff citizens is laying there on the floor. Yep. Dan sets up the projector and starts to watch the film he picked up from Ernie. We see a shot of the exterior of an abandoned, decrepit house, shot silently and in black and white. Dan watches intently as the camera moves inside, showing a man and woman having sex in a bed, but we can't see their faces. They writhe around under the covers when suddenly the woman's hand comes up from under them holding a dagger and she plunges it into the unseen man's back repeatedly. The film then shows Nurse Lisa emerging from behind a curtain, two men peering inside the windows with floodlights outside behind them, two older women coming out of a closet door while smiling widely, all while the man continues to be stabbed. Dude, one of these women has, like, glasses. She's kind of a chubby lady or whatever she comes in. She reminds me so much of the one of the women from... Rosemary's Baby? Baby! I was like, I looked it up. They don't it's credit the, her. right? They're, she's not credited at all, but I was like... She looks like that fucking weird ass neighbor from *Rosemary's that's Baby*, like shaking the so fucking much. violent, shaking the baby in <laughs> yes, the ground. Yes, the one that just like sits on she Rosemary's book long. and was just knitting out of nowhere. Yes. That's yes, <laughs> I thought. That. I'm like, that's what I thought too. Yeah. The woman pushes the man from on top of her, and we see that it's Janet who looks directly at the camera and smiles. Dan screams in horror, clenching his fists to his eyes. Janet glances off camera, and it pans to the smiling face of Dobbs. Fucking knew it. Fucking knew Fucking it. Fucking knew it. In the next scene, Dan bursts violently into Dobbs's office with his gun drawn, asking what the hell he did to Janet. Dobbs calmly says that Janet was his first, his crown jewel. Dan asks where Janet is and points the gun at Dobbs. Dobbs flips a switch and multiple film projectors start up. We see footage of the hitchhiker being smashed with a boulder, of George Lemoyne being burned, of the fisherman being slashed, of multiple death photos of the bodies in the morgue. Dobbs tells Dan to look at them, look at my children. Dobbs says that the bodies had to be disfigured, that he had to make them look how they used to because that is his art. Dan asks again where Janet is and Dobbs says that he found her drowned in the creek. He says that not even her injuries could hide how beautiful she was. Dan cries saying his wife can't be dead and Dobbs says that yes she was she is like all the others like the man that Dan hit with his car he was dead long before Dan hit him. Dan hisses at Dobbs asking how he did it. Dobbs says Dan can call it black magic or a medical breakthrough but Dobbs is going to take this secret to his grave. Dan wails loudly calling it a nightmare. Dobbs just continues on and says he liked Dan, so he gave Janet to him as a gift. He says most of the dead were given back just a bit of their former lives, but he gave Janet fear and sex and love. Dobbs says that the others can't go a week without needing a touch up, but Janet can go a month. While the others were drawings, Janet was a painting, a masterpiece. He coos. Yeah, I I do have something to add here real quick because yeah. this is like this is Gary Sherman's like. Um, the I looked up Gary Sherman's IMDb and like his his um he's led a really interesting life. Like he was in the military and he did photography, and like he w- did backing vocals for like Eric Clapton and like what else this dude is fucking fascinating. But like he uh did a lot of like um. Short films and music mm-hmm. videos before music videos were like a thing. That was uh-huh. what he like got or his early start doing. And then later on, he did mostly producing. He didn't do like a yeah a ton of like directing some after true this. crime stuff, right? Yes, yeah. So like this scene with all the like multiple shots of all of the like mm-hmm. uh, footage playing. Oh, it's so cool! It is like a really really cool shot, and it's like this the like the. It's like the titular moment. It's like everything was leading up to this, to this. Yeah. And it's like the big reveal, the big oh, I am the devil. It's and like sp- and Jack Albertson's performance sells it oh, God, even harder. He's so he's so good in this. He's really very innocently creepy. Like it just the it's the people that don't seem sinister that end up being the most frightening or, and or he doesn't seem that way or that don't understand why what they're doing is any in any way wrong and not like exactly he's like what, he's what? Like. i'm an artist he's he's frustrated with other people for not appreciating his art more than he's he's like this is not sinister i'm giving yep. you i'm giving you beauty i'm giving you life yeah Dan asks why Dobbs is doing all of this, and he says that the dead don't age and they don't get sick, and after he works on the bodies, they look so good and healthy that he can't stand to bury them. Dan points the gun again at Dobbs, calling him an evil son of a bitch, and Dobbs says that he can't kill him, he can only make him dead. He urges Dan to pull the trigger and make him one of his own children. Dan hesitates, and Dobbs says that perhaps he needs a little more motivation. He motions to the door, and Janet comes in, reciting the same speech earlier about the principal scheduling a locker check and asking what Dan wants for dinner tonight. Dan tearfully looks at Janet, asking why she's doing all the things she does, and Dobbs chimes in, saying that she only has the memories he gives her, she only appears to be alive. Janet smiles blankly at Dan as he tells her no she is alive and he caresses her face but his hand comes away with part of the skin of her face which Janet absently touches and ignores continuing that he can have anything he wants for dinner tonight but he'll have to fix it himself. Dan slowly raises the gun while Dobbs continues to tell him over and over she's dead. She's dead Dan. Dan begs Janet to please die and he points the gun and fires. This doesn't faze Janet, who just keeps rambling on about dinner. Dan screams... (laughs) About beef stroganoff. (laughs) Beef stroganoff and minute steak. Dan screams, please, and fires again four times. Janet finally comes out of her stupor, saying, Dan, I'm dead. Please bury me. Please bury me. As she backs out of the room, crying. Suddenly, Dobbs is behind Dan and spins him around, causing Dan to fire in surprise, two shots directly into Dobbs' gut. Dan looks up and sees the footage of Janet smiling from the bed of the man she killed and he throws the gun at the screen and flees from the room. Why do people always throw their guns? <laughs> <laughs> ah! <laughs> you could use it to club a motherfucker. Like, don't get rid of that. Don't eat the gun. <laughs> Dan sprints into the cemetery with a flashlight screaming out for Janet. Back in the morgue, Dobbs, on the floor and and bleeding from his gut shots, gets up. In the cemetery, Dan approaches George Lemoyne's open grave. Janet has scratched out his name and written Janet on the headstone, and she's laying in the dirt, partially buried, and begging for Dan to bury her. This is so weird. It's so, it's sad. It's very sad. In the morgue, Dobbs stumble-crawls over to his phonograph, putting on a recording of Moonlight Serenade. Back at the gravesite, this is just like back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Back at the gravesite, Jan tries to soothe Janet while he covers her with dirt, and Janet says she loves him as she covers her own face. Like one of those spiders. <laughs> yeah, that's just like, shoop. It's like the the gif of uh sponge laying in the sand and just like, shoop, that's covering it. himself up. Yep. Dan cries as he shovels more on top of her with his hands, despondent. Back in the morgue, we see Dobbs applying makeup to his face, but this is not a great face. No, yeah, it's not his (laughs) art. Not on his own face. He sticks trocars into his stomach so he can embalm himself. The song ends and we see Dobbs laid out on the floor next to the phonograph, not moving. Maybe dead? We don't know. Back in the cemetery, Dan lays atop Janet's newly covered grave and a mangled hand reaches out to pat him. It's Ernie from the Photoshop, and he tells Dan, may she rest in peace. One by one, citizens from the town all come by the grave to reassure him, all of them injured and disfigured. Betty, Ben from the motel, Harry, Freddie slash George, yeah. Jimmy. It slowly dawns on Dan that they are all, and all have been, dead. And he's, like, announcing, like, as their vo- as he- they come through, he's like, oh, my God, so-and-so. So-and-so, and you hear clips of... Um, audio that they like lines that they've said earlier in the film and this is where you hear ask your wife again (laughs) and I was just like fucking great three third times a charm I love this nurse Lisa is last to visit telling Dan to be happy for Janet and then someone says smile and snaps a photo Dan is quickly overtaken by the crowd of Potter's Bluff citizens who attempt to wrap him in a cloth and carry him away but Dan is able to fight them off and run away screaming not me not me Dan runs right back into the morgue and sees Dobbs standing behind the desk. Very much alive. Ish. Cheyenne... Undead. Yeah. Reanimated. Yeah. Dobbs says that there's one more thing he wants to show Dan and he gestures at a large projector screen. The film of Janet stabbing the man in bed is playing, but we see it from a bit of a different angle this time. Now, as the man rolls from atop Janet and onto his back, we very clearly see that it is Dan. He is one of the undead. He screams in terror, then slowly raises his hands up in front of his face. The fingertips are split, fingernails are falling off, and they are a rotting mess. Dobbs kindly says, come Dan, let me fix those for you. A dramatic music sting plays, the scene freezes and fades to black. And the end. Duda! (laughs) Duda! Duda, Duda. Sister, what did you think of Dead and Buried? I have so many things to say. I have so many things to say. But first and foremost, like, oh my God, that ending. Oh my God, that ending. It's so good. It's so good. The 180 and the, he was dead the whole time. Yeah. Like, okay, that generally... Seeing as much as I've seen up until this this point, mm-hmm. horror movie related, that is a trope that if I saw it now, I'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? Mm-hmm. He was dead all along. But this mm-hmm. is, this predates Sixth Sense in a, mm-hmm. in a major way. Spoilers. Um, Spoilers. <laughs> I'm sorry for anyone who hasn't seen Sixth Sense yet. Oh my god. People were holding out, I'm sure. I'm sure. You ruined it. Yeah, they were waiting until we covered that one. Um, <laughs> So, Oh my god. I like that this movie gives us like a different take on the typical Romero, Romero zombie lore. Like yeah. these zombies are reanimated by some weird science and possibly supernatural means, but they aren't outbreak zombies and they don't right. automatically return to life like Romero's or Kirkman's. Right. Um there's ritual that returns them to life and they are conscious enough to walk and talk and take photos. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the like very first zombie movies like way 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 back where it's, where a, it was, it's a voodoo thing. Like, no i mean that's yeah right it's it's like you said it's a ritual it's not just like yeah unknown reasons yeah i'm in a... i'm space radiation or whatever the fuck <laughs> yeah i will refrain from calling it like a you know a protected uh protected set of beliefs because we know that it's not that but it is you know um anyway so i'm shocked by how much i enjoyed this movie the makeup effects and cast was enough for me to like love this movie and want to rate it highly but mm-hmm. like The story is also so fantastic. Yeah. And the big reveal at the end, though we knew something was definitely rotten in the state of Denmark this entire time, we never fully know what was being cooked up. There's like the body snatchers trope that gives it a little bit of a sci-fi vibe, but it's definitely grittier. Yeah. Also, it plays into a fantastically fresh phobia, like being concerned being cornered and photographed by simultaneously being murdered, it's, like, bad enough that these people's lives are randomly ended, but for them to know in their final moments that they're being photographed for some kind of sick posterity. It's, like, the worst fucking kind of paparazzi ever. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. It's so it's like fucking freak death out. paparazzi. Yeah. And it says, like, it says, I find your pain fascinating Enough and, to take a picture of it. Well, and like entertaining. And I'm, they never really talk about what the photos were for, but I am guessing it was so that Dobbs could recreate the right the them Maybe. when after they were dead that's my guess right. I mean, like you never de- really say why right and it's so dehumanizing and it feels like such a fresh approach and it really stuck with me and there is i do want i mean i have to mention this there is an episode of black mirror that loosely takes this concept into the 21st century called white bear it's in season two i don't think i saw that one i'm not sure a woman wakes up in a room and can't remember anything about herself but no one she encounters will speak to her or help her out as she runs from people trying to hunt her down instead they spectate with their cell phones so they're like shooting Ooh. they're shooting her oh, on their re-watch. cell phones like the whole time and like she's trying like they're trying to kill her somebody's coming after her she I think has no idea she has no idea what's happening and she doesn't know why people are following her and taking pictures of her but like and it, like I said it's very loosely yeah you know but it's like a it really fucked me up when I watched that, and so when I watch this, I'm like, "Oh, this is even a better fucked up thing because it's like analog and it's yeah." Oh, I hate like I hate it and I love it and I hate it, and love it. Which in our technological society now, like I feel like there's been a return to this fascination of analog, and like we see it in video games with the analog oh. horror genre that's kind of popped up where everything looks. Aged and, and, you know, like, like old technology. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing this now, I feel like, you know, but that's, I embrace it. Like, I embrace the analog nature of it. But that at the same time, that phobia is still there. That, Mm -hmm. like, you know, r slash don't, don't help, just film. Like, fucking help him. Like, why are you taking pictures? Like, but the whole town's in on it. Uh, Right. You can't trust anybody. No. Um, so, um, I and I highly recommend watching the Black Mirror episode because, like, it I feel like it kind of bridges the gap between 1981 uh, and now, and we're Genials, and so it's our job to bridge the gap. Like that's yeah. what we do, you know. We we we're, we're not, not Gen X, we're not Millennials, millennials. We're, we're like a right little, in that sweet little spot. bit in between. Um, girl, I don't. Uh, I'm so glad I picked uh, this. Like. <laughs> blown away, blown away. Um what did you think of the movie? I loved it. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. I it was like I said I'm I'm surprised that this one's not talked about more when people talk about 80s horror. You know, we talk about the slashers. We talk about Friday the 13th, yeah. the Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and don't get me wrong, I love all those movies. This is not a slasher, but I feel like it belongs up there with some of the the titles that always get mentioned from this era and I I'm not kidding when I say I have not heard anyone talk about this movie well I picked it based solely on the fact that I remember the cover mm, from when I was a kid so mm, this could have been the biggest piece piece of of dog shit like I didn't know what I was like I said the selling point for me was in the trailer I saw Jack Albertson I'm like that's Grandpa Joe I have to watch a horror movie with Grandpa Joe in it yeah I was amazed. amazed. I was surprised. I I will watch this movie again many times. Yeah. If nothing else just to study the effects For after sure. reading Stan Winston and you know what he had to say about them. There are definite plot holes. Like this is supposed to be um Dan's hometown so like when when did he die how did he die how long has he been dead right was it before he went away after he went away like yeah so there's there's holes but, there are questions but <laughs> don't look too close right it, it, you know if you have to like completely put together every little tiny piece of this movie you will find holes yeah i'm not the kind of person that needs to piece it together to enjoy it no I, this is, this is kind of going towards the top of my 80s I horror was list. Say, I mean, so based on all of that, how many days are you running this for? This is a hard rating. This is a really hard rating. Um, oh, like rewatchability for me, yeah. huge. Yeah. Because this is one that I'm just like, nah, man, I want to get to know this movie better. Yeah. Like, I want to, huge. Yeah. I, um, I think this on on a scale from one to 10 days rented. I think this is going to be. Oh, God, this is so hard. This is so hard. I think for me, it's going to be an eight. Same. Yeah, I just, I really, truly enjoyed this movie. Yeah. And. I I don't have a whole lot of bad things to say about it. It's overacted in the endearing way that 80s movies are overacted, but not to the point of like, this is ridiculous. Jesus Christ! Right. Shut up. Like, except the kid <laughs> and the that kid woman. And the, the, the The kid and the mom. You could just drop kick them off that balcony right into right into a pile of Potter's Bluff citizens, and I would not cry a tear. I'd be like, take as many pictures as you want and rough them up a little bit. Shut up. Oh my god, it's dark. <laughs> I'm, I'm a terrible human <laughs> but no overall great oh my god Love same it. yeah eight out of ten for me too I will definitely be watching this movie again just like you said I'll be like we're probably right after this gonna go down and like look through those like those effects again because just they are worthy of they are worthy of of studying yeah oh thank great. you for this one hey no problem you never know when you're going to pick a, a, a good one you haven't seen before, but yeah. this one worked out. Hell yeah. That wraps it up for this episode, listeners and lurkers. Thanks for joining us here on The Last Aisle. What did you think of this week's episode? Let us know on our social media channels, at Last Aisle on Facebook and Twitter, and at Last Aisle Pod on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll be back next week with a new episode. So sit back cuddle up with your copy of Witchcraft and Voodooism and grab a flashbulb and come peruse the selection of movies in the last aisle. See you soon.